Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 142 for the first half of October 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is trying to figure out who talked about what first in science. There really is no claim per se in this episode. Rather, I came up with the idea after seeing the inevitable response by pseudoscientists, and even political commentators, to the recent announcement that data from a NASA spacecraft had shown that there was active liquid water on Mars, today, albeit very salty and in tiny bits that quickly evaporate away. So what I want to talk about in this episode is the difficulty with tracking down who is really the first person or group of people to discover something, or even to propose an idea in the first place in science. As a simple example, let's take calculus. Most people who think they know who invented the concepts of calculus probably think that Isaac Newton is that person. He is certainly credited in most cases because he really was the first person to use it in something that most of us think of as something important, like classical physics, which is rightly credited as Newton having invented. But you may have heard that there is a little bit of a controversy over this, and that Gottfried Leibniz is the person who should truly get the credit with making high school math students' heads hurt. The controversy over who did it first even has its own Wikipedia entry called the Leibniz-Newton Calculus Controversy. What it boils down to is who published first. Leibniz started to publish some of his work on calculus in 1674, and in 1684 he published his first paper where he used, and he showed, some of the basic principles of calculus, and it was used again by L'Hopital in 1696. But Isaac Newton, based on papers that were only later published, had begun to work on the concepts of calculus in 1666, eight years before Leibniz published. And even though Newton published his Principia Mathematica in 1687 that showed the results of calculus, he never published how he did it until 1693 in part, and in 1704 in full, two decades after Leibniz showed how he was doing it. My point in this little bit of history is to explain that the controversy over who did what first is not limited to modern science. I mean, this whole controversy blew up in 1711. And it's also not something that only skeptics quibble over when they want to take a shot at a pseudoscientist taking credit for an idea, as I'll discuss in a bit. One of the reasons why understanding this is important for science outreach is that when we keep making incremental discoveries towards an eventual goal, or when we forget what was found before, or when we exaggerate a previous finding and then really find it, it makes us look stupid. Related to the water on Mars, the running joke around many real geophysicists is, oh boy, look, we discovered water for the first time on Mars again. But let's take a look at a more mundane example first. In 2013, there was a NASA press release that was titled, NASA ESA Telescopes Find Evidence for Asteroid Belt Around Vega. The first sentence was, Astronomers have discovered what appears to be a large asteroid belt around the star Vega. If you were to read further into the press release, it's all about the implications comparing it with other recent discoveries and what questions future studies hope to answer. It all seems as though this is very new 
and very interesting, and as a press release, and from NASA no less, it was picked up by many news outlets, and I'm not trying to minimize those recent scientists' work. But let's turn the clock back 30 years. In June of 1984, in the journal Science, again, one of the two preeminent science journals in the world, there was a paper published by Paul R. Weissman with the title, The Vega Particulate Shell, Comets or Asteroids? If you read the abstract, it states, The IRAS science team has discovered a shell of particulate material around the star Vega. The Vega shell is probably a ring of cometary bodies. A possible hot inner shell around Vega may be an asteroid-like belt of material a few astronomical units, the distance between Earth and the Sun, from the star. We didn't have the internet back then, but based on a Google News archive search, at least one newspaper, the Boston Globe, mentioned this study in October of 1984. It is true that these are not exactly the same thing, water on Mars, asteroid belt around Vega, or discovery of calculus or invention of calculus. It's true that the new data are much better than 30 years later, but the basic idea is the same. We knew 30 years ago that Vega had a debris disk around it of at least cold cometary and maybe warm asteroidal material as well. Ergo, the press release title is misleading, and anyone who does a news search who's looking for a particular thing that may have been discovered and when it may have been discovered will be misled, in this case by 30 years. So let's say that I claimed to be an alien contactee, and I claimed and wrote down and published in 2010 that aliens told me there was a disk of debris around Vega. I could have easily gotten that from the 1984 paper. But then, when this press release comes out in 2013, I could, through my, say, South American media representative, show that I knew it, and I was saying it, before this work in 2013. Therefore, my alien contact is real. I'd be wrong, but more on that later. So let's get back to the topic du jour, water on Mars. We have known since the first Mariner photos were returned from Mars in the 1960s, over 50 years ago, that it had water-carved like landforms. We also knew, since we had telescopes pointed at Mars that could resolve it, that Mars had white polar caps. From Viking images in 1970s, we knew that Mars had valley networks that looked very much like the sapping valley systems we have on Earth, like the Canyonlands in Utah and the United States. We also saw what looked like sandbars on the downstream side of craters, making them look like tadpoles, except for those who don't believe in pareidolia. We also saw a very smooth northern hemisphere, which probably, possibly, maybe, kind of could have been an ocean basin. Since we've had spectrometers in orbit of the planet, we've also known that the polar caps were made partly of water ice and partly of carbon dioxide ice, or more commonly known as dry ice on Earth. Every lander that we've sent to Mars has found evidence of a wet past. The Phoenix lander in the late 2000s dug, well, 2000s, 20-noughts, whatever. The Phoenix lander, about five, six, seven years ago, dug down to and exposed ice just a little bit below the surface at a high northern latitude, and the gamma-ray spectrometer in orbit around Mars a decade ago returned data that was made into maps that showed near-surface ice down nearly as close to the equator as 45 degrees latitude. That's pretty close to the equator, all things considered. In 2000, 
high-resolution cameras in orbit returned images of slope streaks on crater walls, features that are up to 200 meters across and occur throughout the Martian year. They last years or decades before these slope streaks fade away. Hope was high, over a decade and a half ago, that these were made by water, perhaps leaking out from an aquifer and running down the side of the crater before the water rapidly evaporate in the low pressures of the atmosphere. When we got better cameras in orbit, in particular the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter's high-rise camera, which is capable of taking images only 25 centimeters per pixel, the size of a large dinner plate, we found a different type of feature running down the sides of crater walls. We called these recurring slope lineae, or RSLs for short. Recurring slope lineae comes from the idea that we see these recurring, they occur on slopes, and they are linear features. Uh, Note that we do try to name things in a way that does not imply an origin. That way, if the interpretation later changes, we don't have to rename them. So anyway, we found these RSLs, and they were first reported in a science paper, again, the journal Science, by Alfred McEwen and other people in 2011. These were very, very different from slope streaks. And in fact, there was a large table in the McEwen et al. 2011 paper that explains the differences. One is that RSLs are only 5 meters wide instead of 200. Another is that they only last months, and they only form when Mars is close to the Sun for about one-third of its orbit. They also are associated with rocks, while slope streaks aren't. RSLs have a high thermal inertia, while slope streaks don't. Thermal inertia is the resistance to change in temperature, like a big rock has a high thermal inertia, while sand has a low thermal inertia. They also only occur on dark material, and are up to 40% darker than the material in which they form. Slope streaks only occur on bright material and are only 10% darker than the material in which they form. So there are big differences between RSLs and slope streaks. And for the last several years, more and more people became convinced that they could only be formed by water. The latest news is that we had spectral information from the CRISM instrument in orbit that showed water on the RSLs. This was the big announcement, so we had finally, for the first time, discovered water actually in liquid form on the surface of Mars. Very cool. But several people tried to claim that they actually discovered this first. They, as in pseudoscientists, and this, as in liquid water on Mars. One of these people was Mike Barra, who wrote on Facebook, NASA is trying to steal my work and Richard C. Hoagland and Efrain Palermo from 15 years ago. Don't let them do it. And then it contained a link to NASA. On Jimmy Church's radio program, Fade to Black, Mike said, Quite honestly, I was, I think, the first person in the world that said that's what it was. And this is the reasons why. And basically, it was really gratifying, on the one hand, to read these articles on Space.com and stuff, basically confirming everything I had published along with my co-workers, you know, 15 years ago. The alternative researchers, the people on the outside, have been right all along. Tonight, we should stick a feather in our cap and say, we won this one, because we've turned out to be right, and all of the NASA supporters really have turned out to be wrong. Because NASA's finally come around to the truth doesn't mean they were ever right about this. They've been wrong all along. 
I probably don't have to mention the incredible arrogance of that statement and how wrong it is on many, many different levels. But if you'd like to read more about it, there is more to that transcript, and I've linked to Expat's blog, Dork Mission, in the show notes if you'd like to read it, or you can just go to dorkmission.blogspot.com. In addition, Richard Hoagland dedicated an entire night of his radio program to saying that he was the first one to discover water on Mars, as opposed to Mike. And then you have Rush Limbaugh, who I think has the largest radio audience in the world. He said that water on Mars was all part of some, quote, technique to advance the leftist agenda, and he was going to, quote, assume it would be something to do with global warming. Now, I know that's a bit gratuitous because it really doesn't have anything to do with who did something first, but I felt that I had to slip in a little bit more of pseudoscience on the political side uh, in this episode about recurring slip linear and other things. But now you have it. Context for how we have progressed from knowing nothing about the surface of Mars to evidence of past water to evidence of current ice to finally evidence that water really does flow in some places on Mars today during certain months of its year. And NASA did it first with their data. Not the pseudoscientists with their suppositions. I did get into a bit of a debate about this on the Facebook page for the podcast with the third person that Mike Barra mentioned on his Facebook post, Efrain Palermo, who was also a guest on Richard Hoagland's nightly radio program discussing this. Efrain mentioned, and maintained, that he really did figure it out first, despite my pointing out that he was again talking about slope streaks, which are very different from RSLs. He seemed to refuse to accept that they are very very different things. The only thing they have in common are that they are sort of valley or streak-like things on the side of crater walls. Other than that, they're very, very different. It's kind of like saying every crater forms from an impact from outside of the planet, when that's not true. You can also have volcanic craters, calderas. You can also have uh, pit craters, which are caused by the collapse of lava tubes, and you see all the time in Hawaii. It's the same looking kind of thing, but it has a very different origin. Unfortunately, the evidence for water on Mars in some form has been so abundant for so long that the reason why the pseudoscientists are wrong in this case is subtle. Getting down to what the exact difference is between slope streaks and RSLs and getting down into who said what first. Because even if it were slope streaks that they were talking about instead of RSLs, or another kind of feature on the wall of craters, it was real scientists working with NASA data who were still the first to come up with the idea. On June 22nd of 2000, they announced that they saw gullies in craters, also different from slope streaks, which they thought might form from liquid flowing water on Mars. That was June 2000, which was a year before anything written by Hoagland, Barra, or Palermo. But finding that information isn't straightforward, and it was Expat who sent me a link to the Space.com article linked to in the show notes that discusses the history of water on Mars announcements by NASA. And this gets to the final part that I wanted to mention in this discussion, which gets back to the alien contactee example that I discussed before, and even the calculus example that I opened the episode with. Figuring out who did something first or who said something first, or even more difficult, who thought something first, is very, very hard. And because it's hard, pseudoscientists thrive on taking advantage of it. 
I did a very extensive episode, number 90, looking into the claims made by people talking about the Billy Meyer contactee case where many of his followers claim that because Meyer wrote about something at some point in time and an announcement about its discovery was allegedly made after that time, that it could not possibly have been known to anyone but Meyer before the announcement and therefore Meyer's contacts with aliens were real. In that episode, I looked meticulously at several of those claims related to information about Jupiter and Saturn, and I showed that it was not the case that the ideas Meyer wrote about had been known, had been discussed, and in many cases I actually pointed to the publications before Meyer wrote about them. Meyer's fans came back pretty much as I knew they would by claiming two things. One was moving the goalpost, claiming that now I had to show not just that the information was known to some people before Meyer published it, but that Meyer had to have had access to that information, and I had to show that he had access to that information. The other method that they came back with was to nitpick with exact phrasings on terminology to basically argue that what I was talking about was slightly different than the idea of Meyer's, or that Meyer was talking about something slightly more nuanced that wouldn't be discovered until years later. I countered the former by pointing out that the claim was that Meyer could not possibly have known by any source other than aliens, and I proved that was wrong. As for the exact terminology, or idea, who knows what he was talking about in poetic German from decades ago as translated now into English by fans with a marked desire to make him look correct. But all of this gets back to the idea of figuring out who thought of something first. It's really hard, and when you go by something like a press release, you're automatically putting yourself at two disadvantages. One is that a press release, by its nature, is going to exaggerate, sensationalize, and leave out everything that was done before so as to make the latest stuff look as good and new and groundbreaking as possible. But second, the press release was something that comes out months, if not years later, after something is determined, in most cases. Same with the published paper or conference abstract. And that may not be the first time. It is entirely possible, just like the asteroid belt around Vega example, that something very similar was done decades earlier, but you would never know it when the latest work is getting all of the attention. But besides applications to pseudoscience, because I really don't care much if Mike Barra and his little fan club of true believers really think he discovered something before NASA did, in the broader field of science, there are really two problems to figuring out who did something first. One is credit. It might sound like an egotistical reason, but when you did something first, and you don't get the credit when someone later does for that discovery, it's not good. Hopefully I don't need to explain why. The other reason is that we can't progress if we're consistently repeating something because we forgot that we figured it out before. The other reason is that we can't progress if we're consistently repeating something because we forgot that we figured it out before. The other reason is that we can't progress if we're consistently repeating something because we forgot that we figured it out before. Now hopefully that audio loop was a nice if slightly annoying aural example of what I'm talking about. I recently faced this in a workshop that I organized for 50 scientists in May of this year about crater studies. We had people at the workshop who pretty much founded the field of the study over 50 years ago, 
and we had people who were still graduate students all coming together to discuss some of the outstanding issues that we should be focusing on in the coming years. One of the many take-home messages was that institutional memory was gone. We were spending time and resources identifying problems that they had figured out decades ago. Or not necessarily figured out, but at least identified. But they had never written them down, and the next generation forgot until we rediscovered them now. And that's a problem, not only because it wastes time, resources, energy, and taxpayer money, but it means that we have trouble progressing in science. That's why I'll be a guest editor of a special issue of a science journal, not the journal Science, but a science journal, that will have a lot of review articles based on what was discussed at the meeting to hopefully preserve some of that institutional knowledge. And I suppose that that's the point of this episode. It's important to remember where we've been, who discovered what, and why, so that we can continue to progress in our knowledge about the universe. The logical fallacy for this episode is moving the goalpost. It is a really simple one to understand because it's a good visualization in the name, even for those of us who may struggle differentiating things like baseball versus golf. After all, they both involve round balls that you hit with things. Moving the goalpost means that you start with one claim, but then when it's been addressed, you alter your claim to be more stringent and specifically exclude that explanation. This is also known as shifting sands or raising the bar. It is an incredibly common fallacy by young Earth creationists who might, for example, ask to be shown something that is evolving today. When that's shown, such as Richard Lenski's long-term evolution experiment with E. coli, the young Earth creationists will conveniently evolve their argument to try to clarify what they meant by evolving today to be something that you cannot possibly show them and specifically excludes Richard Lenski's E. coli experiment. Or, to use the sports metaphor from which this comes, if you're playing American football and someone kicks the ball through the goalpost, if you had moved that goalpost, they would not have scored. This is a form of the special pleading fallacy, which I'll talk about more in a future episode. Feedback on this episode is related to the last one on the 440 Hertz conspiracy. Everyone who wrote in said that they had heard the difference between the two tones, and that was a lot of people. Thank you for writing in. It's nice to know that there are more than five people out there. I actually heard the difference too when I was editing the episode together. I think it's because I put the tones too closely together. In this episode, I randomly played three tones. One was 440 hertz, one was 432 hertz, and another was a duplicate of either 440 or 432. I kind of hate to ask you all to write in again, but if you have a moment, please write in and tell me what pitch was what for those three tones. If the first was higher or lower, second higher or lower, third was higher or lower, or you really couldn't tell the difference. My point in changing this experiment and doing it this way is to make it a bit more realistic, because playing them really with maybe two seconds of audio between them isn't really a fair experiment. It is kind of easy to tell the difference, and Apologies to anyone who couldn't tell the difference. 
For announcements, for those who listen right when these episodes come out, yes, this one is two weeks late. No, I unfortunately don't expect that to improve in the near future, and I was actually thinking of just uh, not doing episodes in October in general because I'm doing 90-hour workweeks. Of course, I can only bill 40 hours a week, so it's a cost savings to you, the taxpayer. I may end up still blowing off November and just trying to get two episodes out that are dated as October and then pick back up in December. We shall see. For recent reviews, I want to thank El Parley, maybe, in the U.S., and I'm a film fan in the U.K. who helpfully actually wrote me in to tell me to look since it's not a store that I often check in iTunes. Since I don't have ads or ask for donations or anything like that, I really do ask that you take a moment to share the podcast with people who you think may be interested or even not, but also to rate the podcast and write a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast access point of choice if it's an access point that accepts reviews. So with that said, that's going to wrap up this episode. Again, I'm not entirely sure when the next one will come out, but it will likely be dated as October 16th, even though this is coming out October 16th to 17th. So, with that said... That wraps up this topic for the 142nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment for the page of this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me at pseudoastro. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, random strangers that you hopefully won't ever meet in real life because they're random strangers, so why would you want to? 